Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, Small Town Fam. So, I am thrilled to tell you that this is another episode from retired Detective Chief Superintendent Roddy from Scotland, who a couple of weeks ago gave us Keep Digging. And I remember listening to Roddy lay out both of his cases, in fact, and thinking, if true crime could be elegant, Roddy makes it so. You'll also notice as I welcome him back in the real-time intro of this episode that he says, well, it's only been five minutes. (laughs) And that's because Whenever we ask a guest to give up their day off or time they'd rather be spending with their family or golfing or walking the dog or whatever, we try to get a couple of cases with them in one session just so that we maximize their very valuable time with us. So without further ado, let's get to it. When we talk about rural investigators, rural detectives, in the big cities, they've got resources coming out of their ears. They can throw yet another team at it. They can throw all the resources in the world out. I think we rural detectives have a real sense of protecting our place. When a serious crime is committed in a small town, a handful of detectives are charged with solving the case. I'm Yardley, and I'm fascinated by these stories. So I invited my friends, Detectives Dan and Dave, to help me gather the best true crime cases from around the country and have the men and women who investigated them tell us how it happened. I'm Dan. And I'm Dave. We're identical twins from small town USA. Dave investigated sex crimes and crimes against children. He's now a patrol sergeant at his police department. Dan investigated violent crimes. He's now retired. Together, we have more than two decades' experience and have worked hundreds of cases. We've altered names, places, relationships, and certain details in these cases to maintain the privacy of the victims and their families. So we ask you to join us in protecting their true identities as well as the locations of these crimes out of respect for everyone involved. Thank you. Today on Small Town Dicks, we have the usual suspects. We have Detective Dave. Hello, Yardley. Hello, David. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy that you're here. And we have Detective Dan. Hello, team. Hello, team you. And Small Town fam, we are so 
thrilled to welcome back a new guest to the podcast, fan favorite for us already, retired Detective Chief Superintendent Roddy. Hello. Nice to be back. I don't know whether people know I've only been away for five minutes, but I've been been away (laughs) and been refreshed. Got into the restroom, as you suggested, Yardley. I don't know whether you could see that I was starting to shift uncomfortably in my chair, but uh, that was good advice and and discovered that my wife had been baking whilst I'd been in here and um, I'm now tucking into a large chunk of millionaire shortbread, which is my very favourite. Yes, please. So it's quite delicious. I'm rejuvenated in many ways. This is such a thrill for us. Well, I think you're probably slightly overstating that, but um, (laughs) it's... It's much more thrilling for me because as I'm now retired, getting the opportunity to bang on about old cases is quite exciting because none of my children listen. And, um, (laughs) you know, other than when we go out on a golf outing, we get together and talk drivel about old cases and reinvent our expertise. Uh, We never make any mistakes when we're reminiscing, I notice. (laughs) So true. I hope that we can bring the team over to Scotland and actually meet you because now, of course, we're meeting over Zoom. Well, it'd be fantastic if you could come over. It's lovely. I know a couple of you have been to Edinburgh before, but you know, you've know you missed the joys of the peril that is Perth. <laughs> Clearly, whoever was organising your tours neglected to point out the peril of Perth. So uh, uh, we would be very pleased to welcome you here. Thank you. <laughs> that kind of neglect will not be repeated. Well, it's forgivable, but not forgettable. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. So while we love the banter, we could just chat with you over millionaire shortbread all day, Roddy. Our fans, unlike your children, apparently, have come for some true crime. So please tell us how this case came to you. Okay, this case relates to the previous one I was talking about because it happened all around about the same time. This is quite a short case, but again, there's a real emphasis on luck. You know, I always consider myself a lucky detective, a lucky investigator. The last case I talked about took years to conclude, and this one just took a couple of days. While we were working on the previous case, we'd had another murder. So we had Stuart's case, you know, the long-term murder investigation. Then we had another one, which was complicated. Somebody had been lying for a number of days. He had sustained injuries and had succumbed to them in his own house, so we didn't even know where the location of the murder was. And there were no witnesses. By this time, the complicated murder that we're dealing with, we'd already worked 24 hours straight. So whilst we had these two cases running, I got a phone call in the middle of the night and they said, you're going to need to come out. We've got a body lying in a park and it looks suspicious. This park is called the Inch. And we have two inches in Perth, the North Inch and the South Inch, which are old common grazing areas big areas of grassland, which are now public parks. One of these parks, the South Inch, has got a boating pond and it's got kids' swings and things like that there. So I'll drag myself out of my bed, headed out, and I've got no resources to call out because they've all been working the same hours I've been working and it's all the same detectives. There's no huge well that we could go to constantly to refresh them. So it's just me and I don't mean to try and get sympathy by saying that. Just that was the way it was. It paints a great picture, though, how easily a small department can be taxed. Yeah, and we were tired. We were really tired. So I went off down there and found a man lying on a path with some pretty severe head injuries. It's an asphalt path with 
brick edges and I'm hoping that he's fallen and he's cracked his head. As opposed to this being a homicide. Exactly. But I've got a bad feeling about it. Do you have an identity of this victim? Yeah, he's called James and we secure the scene. We call out forensics. James is taken off to Dundee where the mortuary is. I got on the phone to my neighbouring division. I said, we are completely strapped. I need a loan of two detectives to go down to Dundee and go to the post-mortem for me and find out what the story is with James. I should add that the complicated murder that we're dealing with, we have somebody in custody who we've had in since the midweek, and by this time we're on the weekend. There was a lot of loose ends to tie up, and I needed the team to focus on that complicated one and not get distracted by another one. So next day... We worked away at that all day and at six o'clock or so we're sitting down for the debrief for the day's activities and the two guys from the neighbouring division come in in the middle of the briefing and say, okay, give us an update on the death overnight and the words you don't want to hear, yep, sorry, definitely a murder. James has been kicked to death, he's got injuries all over his body that you couldn't see because he's fully clothed, he's had a really severe beating. So we know who he is, but we don't really know much about James. He's a middle-aged man, single man, who works for the council. What's the council? You know, all the public services, from social work to childcare to collect the bins, education. Oh, like city works, like public works. Yeah, city hall, city works, yeah. All that stuff comes together, that's the council. So James worked there in a pretty junior position. He had a nice little flat, extraordinarily tidy, He's a real clean freak. So it's a guy nobody noticed, really. We know that he's a quiet man. He's not a guy that much is known about by his colleagues or his neighbours. He is a guy who keeps himself to himself. Now, one of the interesting things about that area of the park is that it's really well known for being an area which is used by homosexuals for cruising and gay sex. So we know this, obviously, and... That very early in our thinking becomes a consideration for what the motive for this attack might be. And we're sitting, starting to crank up that investigation and starting to put the remains of the previous investigation on ice till we see what we're going to do with this. And we get the break, the bit of luck that, to be honest, we desperately need because we're all exhausted. A lady comes into the office and says that her daughter overheard somebody that she knows in the queue at the chip shop. Do you know what a chip shop is? Is that where you get fish and chips? That's exactly it. Yeah, you get fish and chips. Oh, okay. <laughs> so she's in the queue at the chip shop and she overhears somebody that she knows from school talking about a guy that gets murdered on the inch. Now, we haven't released anything about somebody being murdered other than police are investigating a sudden death on the inch. It's not being widely broadcast, so how would she know? And how old is this girl? She's 14, 15, something like that. So I looked round the team who are all sitting with their heads down, trying to avoid my gaze. <laughs> I say, right, you two, go and get her. And she tells us the story. She names the girl who she overheard, and there's a few issues getting the straight story from her because she's frightened to tell us. And then we send another pair up to see her pal who told her, you know, and it's all revolved around this group. 
And it's the first ever case that I was involved in where social media was a fact. We didn't really know anything about social media. This was Bebo. And I don't know if you remember Bebo, but Bebo was an American social networking site, not on smartphones, but it was on computers, so home computers. It was a precursor to Facebook and all that. MySpace was around the same time, but MySpace was more of a almost like you had your own little website, whereas Bebo was much more like a social network. So it's sort of, they can have a chat room on this Bebo. Yeah, that kind of thing. Of course, I don't think any of us had heard of Bebo. Some of our kids had, but we hadn't. So this group of young people, they were all talking about this murder on Bebo. We were taking photographs of screens and trying to track down who was who. We didn't have access to the internet on our computers because that might have been a breach of our security protocols. So we were going to houses, knocking on doors, getting statements, looking in kids' bedrooms at Bebo on their home computers, taking photographs of it to be later developed because we couldn't develop them instantaneously and scribbling down what it said, bringing it back, pulling people in. And we had a procession of young people came in to be interviewed And it was one of the most effective uses of whiteboards. So we had big whiteboards on the walls. I've always been a lover of a whiteboard. In fact, if you look behind me, um, we're now working from home and I was feeling despondent about the lack of a whiteboard. You could track my progress by every office that I'd ever occupied being covered in whiteboards. It would be like the beautiful mind was Russell Crowe. That's what my offices all looked like with all this mad scribblings and everything. So yeah, when I started having to work from home, I had to start off. I've got a world map behind me with post-its on it. So it looks like my plans for the world domination. <laughs> Actually, it was my proxy whiteboard with stickers on it. But anyway, my wife was at the shops and she found me a little whiteboard. So I feel quite comfortable. I love it. So we had the whiteboards and we could listen in to what was happening in the interview rooms as it was happening. And we could get that fed back into the CID office so we could get real-time intelligence and Gradually, we started to focus in on three characters, one of whom was a juvenile, 15-year-old, and two of them older boys. So we got this big team of detectives, and we started to track into some behaviour that had been going on in one of the housing estates of the town. And this 15-year-old was hanging about with them. There was a lot of girls kicking about, a lot of showing off, and the atmosphere was getting febrile. And we focused in on these three and probably another two or three of their associates. They all got detained. They all got interviewed. And the story that we got was that this youngster, this 15-year-old, claimed that a man, James, had propositioned him on the inch and he'd gone to get his two older pals who were 20, 21, and said, this guy's just tried me on. We're going to go and sort him. And they went back to the inch and they beat him to death. So pretty clear that those three, after they commit this crime, they didn't do a very good job of keeping it to themselves and all of a sudden... It's on social media and the tail is growing and you guys are like, oh, I know which three we need to talk to. Exactly. As we gathered all this information, witness statements, 
how we managed it was a really simple methodology. Once we knew who our suspects were, we had different colours on the whiteboard. You know, have we got more than one source that proves that fact? How we got corroboration? Because there was so much activity going on around the actual murder with lots of different people who were not there at the time, but who had heard things and knew things. And it then spilled over once they got home onto Bebo, where they were communicating with each other. And of course, some of it was exaggerated, some of it was untrue. So we had to pick our way through all of that evidence based on all of the stuff on Bebo, all of the statements that we were getting for these young people who mostly were terrified at being brought into a police station with their parents and parents didn't know anything about all the things that they'd been involved in. It was chaos in the town. I mean, this sounds like a fast-paced, you guys are gathering information, finding new names that you need to bring into the station. When you finally land on the three, the 15-year-old and his two associates, do they come into the police station around at the same time? Do they see each other there? Are you guys playing each participant off of the other based on the information they're giving? Yeah, exactly that. And when you said it was the 15-year-old who then goes and scouts out or recruits his two partners to come help him commit this crime, that by itself kind of shocks the conscience that it's the 15-year-old typically who would be a follower joining this group to say, I'm building my reputation or I'm showing that I'm part of the team or whatever perverted team factor they have going on there. But I'm just curious how that interaction went with those three and who was the first to crack they didn't say very much at all. But we built a case around about it with this, as you characterize it, this fast-moving investigation. And the evidence was built around about them from that which they'd said and sightings and witnesses and people. So these three suspects, they're aware of the reputation this particular park has, probably at night especially. Yeah. So... Did they go there specifically looking for trouble and that James happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, talking to the wrong people? The young guy, the 15-year-old, he lived nearby. He lived in an area which effectively borders on the park. It's a small town, so they were all running about in that area and he had, for some reason, got separated. There had been a fallout of some kind between the three of them and the 15-year-old had ended up on his own. And whether this is a way of getting him back on the inside with the older guys or whatever it was, whether there was some kind of proposition made, we don't know. But I think this 15-year-old used this as a way to get back in the good books of his elders or whatever warped thinking was involved in it. He was a very troubled young man. So those three boys, the 15-year-old and the two older ones in their early 20s, were they well-known to law enforcement already? Yeah, they were well-known, families known, and it was a surprise that they would have done such a thing because it was so awful. But they were kids who were used to being in trouble. And James, on the other hand, is a guy who's a productive, quiet member of society who just wants to live his life and not bother anybody. Yeah, just a thoroughly decent, quiet man. And, you know, it doesn't matter whether he was cruising for gay sex, whether he wasn't, whatever it was, it's an appalling crime. James was attacked because they perceived that he was a homosexual. It was a homophobic crime and was shocking. I mean, shocking for us in Perth. 
you know, on top of all the other things that were shocking us at this time, this was horrific, that somebody would be beaten to death purely because of his perceived sexuality. It really shook us to the core and made us reach out to the LGBT community locally who were terrified of this development and really give us an opportunity to engage with a community that, I'll be honest, we didn't really know much about. We did have some links into an sort of organised LGBT community, sort of force level, but locally, nothing at all. And you always felt Perth was the kind of place that was live and let live, you know, and to find this kind of prejudice and that it could lead to this kind of behaviour, this kind of violent, violent crime, was really shocking to us. And, you know, the council, the police, all the partners in community safety and in justice were horrified by this. And, of course, this is our town portrayed in the national press in this way, you know, homophobic. As I said to you, we're quite a well-to-do conservative with a small C type of place. And for this kind of crime to visit itself on us was really horrific. The ramifications of it were really significant and it led to commentary in UK national papers about how could this happen and it became for a while a cause celebre and we were at the centre of this, not something we were used to being in our small town. We put on a huge community impact assessment which would look at, you know, the effect that this is likely to have beyond the investigation, beyond the crime itself and we were involved in that for long number of weeks, months after that, leading right up to the trial where we were having to provide real reassurance and working really closely with the LGBT community to make sure that it was clear to them that whatever happened and whatever these three people had done, that wasn't what we were about, what the town was about, and that the police service in Perth were standing shoulder to shoulder with them and our disgust at what had happened. When we talk about rural investigators, rural detectives. In the big cities, they've got resources coming out of their ears. They can throw yet another team at it. They can throw all the resources in the world out. I think we rural detectives have a real sense of protecting our place and everybody in our place. All the people that were affected by it for James's elderly mother and people who were from the gay community and it was a really good example for me of how a community needs to come together after something like that and make sure that the pain is not long lasting and that you heal as much as you can you won't heal it for his mother you won't heal it for him you know he's dead but you can start to heal the impact on your communities there was a lot of really, really good work done by our community cops and a lot of work done by our specialists who were already working with the gay community. You know, as the Detective Chief Inspector in my town, I was horrified that there was a whole group of people who felt completely unprotected. And I didn't know people who felt they didn't have a place they could go to if they were afraid. And... Uh, we put in a lot of contingencies around about that, which exist to this day, to make sure that we don't lose sight of any of our communities and that there are remote reporting. So we will take reports from people as intelligence reports. We'll record them as crimes and we'll investigate them as best we can without exposing their identity, but making sure that we tackle what's happening, even if it doesn't lead to a court case because of the vulnerability of the witnesses. That's amazing. I love that.
you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey folks, Detective Dave here. Let me tell you about Simply Safe, the home security system that I trust to keep my family safe. I depend on Simply Safe to provide me and my loved ones with 360 degree coverage of my property and valuables. I love the variety of monitoring sensors available with Simply Safe Home Security. You get a glass break sensor, which in my experience is one of the most effective tools of detecting a break in. In addition, Simply Safe offers motion sensors, entry sensors, sirens, and flood and fire detection. With Simply Safe Home Security, I have the flexibility to use keypads at multiple entries at my house. This option is especially important to me and my family. I can provide access to people I trust and limit having multiple keys outside of my control, all at the push of a button via the Simply Safe app. It comes with a variety of cameras for indoors and outdoors. And best of all, Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than $1 a day. It gives me peace of mind knowing I can leave the house, I can leave town, I can even leave the country, and I know my home is simply safe. The mobile app integration makes it so easy to make sure everything's in place in real time. I check it every day when I'm away from home. Simply Safe is the best. US News and World Report named Simply Safe Best Home Security Systems 2024. And Newsweek ranked it Best Customer Service in Home Security. With Simply Safe, there are no contracts. And if you're not happy with the service or the product, they have a 60-day money-back guarantee. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind. We want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/smalltown. That's simplysafe.com/smalltown. There's no safe like Simply Safe. So it was a short case, but in many ways an easy case to investigate. By the time we got to, I don't know, I must have been pushing on for tea time again the next day, <laughs> we were pretty much there. We had enough evidence to charge all three boys. We went to court and they pled guilty. 
So in your court system, are they offered the chance to give a statement of remorse or whatever they have to say about the case? Are they able to proffer something to the court? Yeah, if they want. And did these three? No. No remorse? No. They told the story as they heard it, and their defense advocates would provide an account of what they'd done, but we had an embarrassment of riches of forensic evidence. We had shoes with blood on them. We had shoe patterns on the victim, as you would imagine in a case which is spontaneous. It's not pre-planned. It's just done because they were out of control. There's no forensic awareness. So forensically, it was completely open and shut case. And uh, that would be ultimately what would lead to them pleading guilty. The two adults, the primary one got 16 years in prison and the second one got nine years who had been less involved and the 15-year-old goes into a different system altogether so they don't get a sentence per se. But those are long sentences in Scotland. Yeah. So it's a simple little case. The reason I tell it is because it changed me as an investigator. How? Well, it made me think differently about social media. Very clearly different about how we needed to get into that arena because to characterise it, at that time, the internet and social media was like the Wild West. It was frontiers. So people were able to do what they wanted there because there's no supervision. And people are driving into the unknown. It's completely free. And then you start to get to the point where people are putting stockades up. So they're starting to think, we need to protect ourselves, so we're going to start having our own firewalls and we're going to have security systems and stuff like that round about us. But there's still no policing in there. There's no civil society in this new community. And gradually, you start to think, well, as police, we are going to need to become part of that because when you have any community, once it becomes civilised, you need patrol, you need oversight and you need engagement. And then you need to then build on that consensus, the consent of the community. It made me really, really think about how we needed to change the way we did our business to start police the virtual community in exactly the same way, but through consent, that we did any other community we would come across. So that totally changed the way I was thinking as an investigator and as a police officer as well. And we're still not there. I mean, we see some of the oversights coming in. We've got a lot of cases where Google and Facebook are having to account for some of the things they're doing. What we haven't got yet is to say that that patrol activity needs to be overt, visible, uniform patrol so that people can drop in and see you and make sure you feel safe. And I think that's an inevitability. With regulation, we'll have to come the engagement, we'll have to come the patrol, and we'll have to come those protective services. So I'm not sure what they look like, but it really changed my thinking. Dan or Dave, do you feel the same? I do. I think it's a balancing act. We have the First Amendment here in the United States, and people don't want to be censored online, but at the same time, Google and Facebook and a lot of these other apps and apps that we haven't even thought of yet are going to appear on the horizon. And, you know, Facebook, Google, they don't set out to be a hunting ground for predators and people who want to victimize others. That's not their intent, but criminals will take advantage of opportunities in front of them. And I think it's a great idea for there to be an online presence so 
people know at least that it's being looked at. Right. Yeah. Another thing that really struck me was that how much do you really know about your own place? Even when your job is to know about your own place, there's things that still surprise you and you have to keep an open mind on what might be going on there that you're just not aware of. And one of the big failings of intelligence, to my mind, is this idea that intelligence officers start to assume that all that's going on is what they know about and not recognising that there's this huge world out there that they don't know anything about. You know, it goes back to good old Donald Rumsfeld and his, we know what we know and we know what we don't know. And we're, and people mock that, but it's as good a explanation of what intelligence is as I've probably heard at a kind of lay level being explained to people. Because that's exactly what it is. We don't know what we don't know. And that is something that as investigators, we always have to keep at the forefront of our mind that there's always something we don't know. And we don't know that we don't know it. That's where the surprises come. We say it on this podcast all the time. Every time you think that I've seen everything in this job or I've dealt with every situation, within, honestly, within a day or a week or a month, the job reminds you with a big smack in the face that you're getting complacent and you're way too arrogant about your skill, your knowledge, your intelligence, and your level of where you're at in your career. The job always reminds you. Yes, you've forgotten that you're an idiot. I'm going to tell you once more you are. <laughs> Every so often, you used to get somebody come through the door and say, boss, you're not going to like this. You have a look and see who it is that's saying it, and if it's the right person, you think, oh no, this is going to be hellish. Whatever he's going to say next is going to be a disaster. <laughs> the joy of investigation is whatever horribleness it is that lands on your desk is you've got nothing else to do but get on with it. This case was a, a real learning experience for me and for all of us. You know, it was an exciting way to investigate a crime where you were on this ticking clock. Not really because there was any actual legal clock ticking, but because the team were done. They'd had it. They were completely exhausted. And the only way to keep it going and get to where we had to get to was to just keep it going, keep it going, keep it going, keep it going on the adrenaline of the investigation to get to a point where we were satisfied that we had enough evidence. That's probably the thing that I miss the most about the job. Instances like this where the pace is so fast. And I miss being with my brother. Yeah. I spoke to a guy who I got friendly with when I was working in London and he was a detective superintendent, real high flyer from uh, City of London Fraud Squad. It's a big job. You know, half of the City of London Police, which is a really small force that only deals with the square mile in the middle. There's about a thousand in them and half of them are in the fraud squad. So this guy had got headhunted by the Royal Bank of Scotland to come and be their security bloke. And I used to do some lecturing for him on investigative skills and developing investigative strategies for his investigators within the Royal Bank of Scotland, which always included a very nice dinner and no fee. <laughs> it was lovely. And I was out with him for a pint and we have a chat. I says, well, you know, when do you have to make your decision? Because he'd taken it as a leave of absence and he was coming up to the end of his three years. I says, you must be really well set up because he was getting paid a fortune by the Royal Bank of Scotland. And he says, I'm not sure. I'm like, you daft. He says, you know, Roddy, I'm really not sure. I said, why on earth not? And it was exactly the reason that you talked about, Dan. He says, what you don't realise is the joy and the sheer camaraderie and the fun being part of something in these kinds of circumstances when you're 
all combine for this single objective, working together, everybody's got all these different skills. He says, that doesn't happen in the corporate world. If someone goes wrong in the Royal Bank of Scotland, they'll just rush about trying to blame each other for what went wrong. There's not that sense of this huge team effort of collaboration and commitment. And you know what it's like in the police. Everybody squabbles, you know, the traffic guys fall out with the CID and the CID fall out with the big cops and everything like that. <laughs> <laughs> Until someone happens. And then you get this massive team thing that develops. And he says, I miss that so much. I'm thinking of packing it and not taking the big money. I was quite impressed. He didn't, of course. He took the money. But, you know, <laughs> it would have been a better story if he'd said, oh, no, I have packed it, I've gone back to it. But he didn't. He took the money. But you hit the nail on the head. That sense of collectivism, that sense of common purpose is a joy. You don't find it everywhere. Yeah. yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Here's something else that I want to point out. When you talked about you going to the park yourself, this is at the beginning of the story. You guys are dealing with this other homicide. All your detectives have been grinding for hours and days. And you get the call in the middle of the night and you're sleeping. And you don't make a phone call and call one of your more junior investigators. You go out yourself. Right. That's what leaders do. I recognize that. Taking care of your people. These guys need to rest. Let me go handle this. If it turns into nothing, then great. I hope I don't have to call other people out, but let me handle this myself. And you just think about the last moments of James's life. Uh, oh, you, How horrible that must have been. You can't, you know, and you don't want to. It's just awful. Yeah. yeah. In these cases that we worked, that's one of the things that I could always draw on when maybe you're tired or whatever, all I had to do was think about the last moments of this person's life and say, that's just not okay. Right, tired is nothing. Yeah, so what I'm tired? What about this person? I bet they wish they were tired right now. Yeah. Sure. That's interesting. I never thought about that as a motivation. It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Roddy, would you say that being in law enforcement, or would you say that your wife would say your being in law enforcement has changed you? Oh, goodness me, I don't know. 
Uh, she's always known me in law enforcement, so I don't know. I think probably she would say... hope she's not listening in. Uh, she's, uh, <laughs> I think she would say it's what I am. And she would sometimes complain about the hours and the absences and the unreliability. But I think... I wouldn't want to speak for her, but I don't think she would want it any other way. I think she's glad enough I don't do it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it did impact on our lives, there's no doubt about it, and it made her life pretty lonely at times, and it made it difficult. And I never spoke about my work at home, and she didn't really want to hear it, you know, other than a funny story. But not the cases, not the business. She was a teacher, and occasionally our lives would bump into each other. You know, it's just it's just what we did. Did it change me? Of course it must have. It must have. Must have changed me. But uh, I'm not sufficiently self-aware to recognise what particular aspects <laughs> that might have been. <laughs> well, look, I'm crossing my arms now. You've obviously starting to get to me. Yes, you're doing that thing that suspects do. <laughs> it's obviously a good question. <laughs> yeah, I tell you an interesting thing. I was at uh, one time... I had to do one of these personality tests and things. You know, it was for an advancement. You know, you had to fill in this very complicated thing and they ask you hundreds of questions which you've got to tick off very quickly. And so I was at work. I was kind of doing it at the same time as doing work. And um, I started ticking all these boxes about, you know, how you would feel about this and how you feel about that. So I filled it all in and it went away to the people who do the analysis on these things. And it came back and I was reading this analysis of my personality and I sort of handed over to Dawn and I said look she says that's nothing like you I said I know it I didn't think it was like me I sound horrible <laughs> so I went back to the people and I said I think there's been some mistake <laughs> you've picked some horrible person and given me theirs <laughs> and the nice me you know is glorying in the fact that they're a nice person so they said well do it again but this time don't do it at your work and I did it and it came back very different I started to think about it. And do you know what I thought it was? Because I did it when I was at work and whilst I was working. I think what it demonstrated, I had a lot of learned behaviours which probably affected me. So you say, had I changed by being in law enforcement? I don't know if I changed, but at work, maybe I was a different person. It makes sense that you would adapt certain ways of carrying yourself through the day at work that would be different than when you're at home with the family. Like, I know that Dan and Dave, they carry with them a suspicion, just a general suspicion of the world that both of you have said you didn't have before you became cops. And it's because every time you leave your house, pretty much anybody you're going to encounter who is doing something they're not supposed to do is going to lie to you. Your day comprises so much more lying than my day ever, than my year, by and large. And so how does that not set you up to have that kind of expectation when you encounter somebody you don't know who doesn't necessarily want to talk to you? Your assumption is, I will not be surprised if the first thing out of your mouth is not the truth. For a layperson, for a civilian like me, I don't expect that when I meet people I don't know. Maybe you should suspect that they may not be telling the truth. 
<laughs> well, maybe I should. You're not wrong, Roddy. <laughs> I have learned the hard way in some cases. <laughs> so uh, it's an interesting world. And uh, I tell you, that experience of the the whole personality test, that did change me because I became really aware maybe this was a problem and maybe I was behaving differently at work and maybe that wasn't very healthy. So I don't know if I changed back again or not. I'd probably, maybe some of the people working with me know you were just as much of an arse later as you were before that. But I, I don't know. It was an interesting thing to happen. This has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're so grateful for your time and for your service. Well, that's a very nice way to put it. I've enjoyed all my service and I've enjoyed our time together. It's been fantastic. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, it's been so nice to meet you all, including the guys behind the letters there that I know are still listening in, who have been an absolute delight. So it's been a complete pleasure. And uh, come over, come see us. Ah, oh, we will. We'd love it. Thank you. Take care, Roddy. Terrific to see you, fellas. Enjoyed talking to you. Small Town Dicks is produced by Gary Scott and Yardley Smith and co-produced by Detectives Dan and Dave. This episode was edited by Logan Heftel, Gary Scott, and me, Yardley Smith. Our associate producers are Aaron Gaynor, The Real Nick Smitty, and Alec Cowan. Our music is composed by John Forrest. Our editors extraordinaire are Logan Heftel and Soren Bajan. And our books are cooked and cats wrangled by Ben Cornwell. If you like what you hear and want to stay up to date with the show, visit us on our website at smalltowndicks.com. Small Town Dicks would like to thank Speech Docs for providing transcripts of this podcast. You can find these transcripts on our episode page at smalltowndicks.com. And for more information about Speech Docs and their service, please go to speechdocs.com. And join the Small Town fam by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at small town dicks we love hearing from you and if you support us on patreon your subscription will give you access to exclusive content and merchandise that isn't available anywhere else go to patreon.com slash small town dicks podcast that's right your subscription also makes it possible for us to keep going to small towns across the country in search of the finest rare true crime cases told as always by the detectives who investigated them So thanks for listening, small town fam. Nobody's better than you.